Hello everyone and welcome to CEO Journals. I'm your host Ethan Bridge and on this episode I have the pleasure in speaking to Marlon Litz Rosenzweig. Back in 2012 Marlon founded My Little Job. The idea was to connect European students to companies because he and his co-founder Daniel Bark both realised it was a struggle to find a summer job while they were both working at school. The jobs they could secure didn't really match what they were looking to do but they soon noticed that this wasn't any easier for the companies justifying investing in recruitment or training for these shorter stints. This is where the bright idea of freelancing came to fruition. Five years later, My Little Job expanded into the US and rebranded as Work Genius. This was once the company grew their vetted talent base with professional freelancers. Work Genius is a freelance workforce solution that simplifies hiring and managing freelancers with the use of artificial intelligence. With the unemployment rate at a record low and the lack of available talent, it's made it increasingly difficult to hire successfully. Almost four in every 10 working Americans is freelancing today and 91% of companies are struggling to find the specialized talent that they need. Work Genius bridges together the client, project and freelancer needs. Marlon and I discuss a range of topics in today's episode, but the main topics are the true story behind Marlon starting his company, the power of freelancing, and we even touch on the struggles of scaling and building a team. There is so much value packed into this episode, so without further ado, let's dive straight into it. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the CEO Journals podcast. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of talking to Marlon Rosenzweig. How are you doing today? Good. How are you, Ethan? Thanks for having me. No, it's my pleasure and I am doing very, very well. So for the listeners that don't know who you are, can you just give us a quick 60 second introduction of who you are and what you do, please? 60 seconds. Okay. So I'm, uh, I'm Marlon. I'm one of the co-founders and, and CEOs of Work Genius. Um, I'm originally from Germany, born and raised. I then moved to the UK, studied over there, and then came back to start the company with my best friend from high school. The whole idea came about um, because we worked in retail during our summer break at university and we were folding t-shirts and both of us got fired we're not very good at it and we figured there's something broken in the labor market it just takes too long to find a new job and you know as jobs become more and more remote you know what people call the freelance sort of revolution we saw that companies were not ready for that and that sort of you know that was the i don't want to call it an epiphany but that was sort of the the, the catalyst um, yeah. that led us to to starting the company I hope that was 60 seconds. Um, if it wasn't, doesn't matter. It's fine. It, was okay. <laughs> it wasn't too long-winded. That's, that don't want people to just go straight into it. So that's why I just say 60 seconds to make sure it's not too long. But the way I do like to start all my episodes is to throw it back with my guests and ask them about their experience with school. But I know you have pretty much nailed school from looking at your, your LinkedIn profile. I did stalk you a little bit on there. I do apologize. But I know you went to university and I knew you actually take, no, you could, took away a lot from that. So you did... Um, philosophy, politics and economics, PPE, which is a very demanding course. I've got friends that are doing it, so I know that it's not an easy one. So tell us a little bit about that, because a lot of the people I have on this show are the classic 
I say classic, they are these young entrepreneurs that have dropped out of school or college at a young age and never done that part of education. Whereas you've completed it, took a hell of a lot away from it, and then went on to start your own business later on. So how was university for you? Um, I think, you know, I, I guess some of that sort of praise I need to give to my parents. Um, I've, I've always sort of been interested in, in politics, um, somewhat philosophy, but not, not really. And then um, when I was younger, I, you know, I wanted to become successful. That was sort of the, you know, the premises when I was 16, 17, 18, uh, finishing high school. That was sort of, you know, that, that is it. I'm interested in politics. I want to become successful. And there's sort of, you know, a, a, a tiny bit of interest in philosophy. And I guess then, you know, after endless discussions um, with my parents, I came to the point where it's like, if you do want to understand politics, you need to understand philosophy first right um sort of you know a lot of politics evolves around what society believes to be right and wrong and uh you know unlike nietzsche beyond sort of good and evil um the, the you know there are philosophers that do believe there's good and evil and they try to define it and that's sort of what you know our politic political systems are really sort of built on so i think that was you know okay politics and philosophy it is um but there was still that in the drive in me that I wanted to become successful and I knew that a political career is probably not going to get me there um, and I also had an affinity for math very early on um, so th that sort of drove me towards economics and then uh, given that there was a degree that you know covered all these three things I really liked and then on top of all of that I think it was I you know, this, this, this may sound a bit odd, but, you know, it's, it's generally true. I do enjoy complexity and challenges. And when you study a triple major, you are exposed to very different challenges. And, you know, you walk from one seminar to another lecture and you need to change your mindset completely. Uh, one is sort of very semantics driven and one is, you know, math function driven and graphs and, and all of this. So for me, that was, that was, um, that was a nice component of the degree. And um, I think that's why I chose that. And sort of, you know, I had never been abroad um, for extended periods of time before I went to the UK. Um, so that was, you know, that was an additional challenge that, you know, trust me, in the beginning, I was not very happy with it when I had to read, you know, David Hume in English, it doesn't come easy. Um, especially when it's not your native uh, language, but I, I got there eventually. For sure, and you're extremely fluent now. Like, didn't haven't can't you don't slip up at all. So very well done there as well. But Wait so, for it. <laughs> I'm, I bet it won't happen. But um, so, would you consider yourself? Because you said you're very mathematical. Would you consider yourself very logical then within your processes? So within your not only business but whilst you're at university, you preferred something that you could do step by step opposed to taking things from different angles and didn't really know what's going on. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. I, philosophy is very logical. Uh, you know, sort of one strain of philosophy just deals with what is logic and, you know, how can we represent uh, logic in, in a non-semantic way? Uh, so that, that was something that I, that I enjoyed very much. And in politics, it's, there's more ambiguity there, I think. 
um, just because it deals more with the human nature and the human nature in itself is inherently complex and not, not necessarily very well understood. And um, that's, that's where I struggled the most, I think, in my, in my politics classes. And um, being, being the outcome solution-driven person I am, I, I opted for a lot of political philosophy, which qualifies as politics, but was uh, more on sort of the theoretical end of things. Definitely. And I like the way that you've linked it all together as well there. So what if you had to pick out one part from university, like your biggest lesson that you've been able to carry through towards your um, entrepreneurial success also, what would be the biggest lesson you've taken from university? Oh, um, yeah, there's, there's one, there's a sort of, you know, it was a, it was, it was a devastating experience for me, really. Um, I, I think it was about maybe like eight months into the first year of, you know, so the, you know, my, my interests were sort of more, you know, about pubs and, uh, that sort of thing, um, as, as they are in your first year at, at university. <laughs> but, um, you know, I did okay-ish, I think in the first year in sort of my, my exams and all of this. And then I met my economics professor at the time, um, who, you know, himself, a most brilliant man. And he, he looked at me and said, Marlon, you have all of this potential, right? I don't, I don't know whether that was a lie, but that's what he said. And was like, you, you know, you're not realizing that. Um, and I think he even said, you will end up in a ditch if you continue like that. And, I was like, oh, but, you know, what do you mean? I feel, you know, you know I'm, I'm, I'm winging it, I think is what I said. You know, this is working decently. And he's like, Marlon, there's no excuse for not excelling at everything that you do. Um, you have to work hard and you probably have to work harder than anybody else. And don't come up with excuses to say, oh, I'm good at math. Thus, I'm not very good at anything that requires, you know, writing in English. Um, he was like, you know, Albert Einstein was a very sociable, funny man, you know, despite being a theoretical physicist, you know, and you typically don't associate these two things, right? He was you're like, oh, wow, this is a math person, right? They live on a whiteboard or blackboard at the time. And um, he said, no, no excuses. Um, you can be good at anything that you put your mind to and work harder than anybody else. And I think that was at the time very devastating because it's all the reasons for success and failure you start to internalize and that puts huge pressure on you. But I think I was, I was extremely fortunate to have met that man that early on. He told me that and I think ever since I've sort of, you know, that, that, is, that is the one thing that I'm, that I'm almost preaching to my leadership team here at Work Genius um, that they should not assume that it's fine to be not good at something. They can always be better. And um, I think it's very rewarding when you, when you see that it works, right? When you have these success moments, then uh, it might be uncomfortable in the beginning, but then it, it's, uh, it's, it's a huge reward. So was that more of an epiphany moment for you then? Like when he told you that you changed and that's when you started realizing wait, I know this is my, it's my freshers year at university, but I do need to actually take this seriously if I actually want to do well. 
I think I know the moment itself, it definitely didn't feel like an epiphany. It probably, you know, I needed a week for that to sink in. Um, and I know, I know he backed it up with a few examples where he was like, you know, look at that, you know, the Albert Einstein example. He's like, you know, that is, that is a man. He excelled at, you know, the, the a lot of things that you sort of presumed were mutually exclusive and that were not. And there's tons of other examples of people that were so good at so many things and that worked so hard to get there. For sure then. So you've gone to university, you've got your degree. Many parents, and I, I didn't go to university myself, but if I did, my parents would be, and if I were to go and then start my own business straight after, my parents would have been like, why did you go to university? You've got this degree. Why aren't you using it to get a full-time job? So have you always considered yourself an entrepreneur and wanted to have your own business? And when you actually did, what did your parents think of that? It's, it's interesting. So my intention had always been to, to be successful. You know, it was not, it was not a very clear vision. I think at the time it was just, I want to be successful. Um, I sort of, you know, come from, from fairly humble beginnings. It's sort of a very intellectual household. Um, so going to university was not something that you use for vocational training of any sort. It's just, you know, developing the mind and the character. I think that was the main objective. And um, so, but I wanted to become successful. Sort of my, my, my trajectory took me more into sort of the investment banking uh, sphere. And, um, you know, specifically sort of M&A, that was really sort of what I was, you know, trending towards. And then I think we had this moment where we were like, oh, there's a vacuum in the market and there should be a company for this. My, my parents, I think they, they didn't care whether I did investment banking or that. They were like, you know, both of it is a waste of time. Why don't you become an intellectual academic? <laughs> and... Um, I think I still remember my grandmother, she said, you know, oh, could, couldn't you secure a proper job? Uh, you know, what are you doing? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I think it's, I guess I've, I've heard it, um, but it, it didn't hold me back. For sure. And I know you mentioned proper job there, because <laughs> I think especially at the moment and with the whole of this, oh, Instagram influencers are now earning a hell of a lot of hell of a lot of money. There's different ways. There's so many different ways you can make money nowadays, especially online and specifically what you do in freelancing. And because you aren't you aren't working for a corporate, those older generations don't consider these freelancing social media influencers, this new online money as a proper job. So well, how did you how did you find that? Like trying to explain to them, look, this is actually making me a lot of money. You don't need a so-called proper job. Yeah, so I, I think just to clarify, I, I started the company, but I'm not, you know, I'm not a freelancer. I'm actually yeah. sort of, you know, a full-time employee um, of the of of the of the company. Um, I think that the way this came about was, you know, again, sort of we, we worked in that retail shop, uh, we got fired, and then we realized, oh, companies are desperately looking for talent, there's talent out there, but, you know, the two parties, they don't find to one another. And um, what we attributed that to was basically the high friction in the market. When you want to start working for a corporate, 
you know, the, the, the market numbers or something, it takes 52 days to find, vet, and hire someone. It costs about $4,000 per hire. So there's a lot of friction when you think about it. And we're like, of course, the market doesn't clear because if someone's only available for three months of work, as we were at the time, no one's going to go through 50, 52 days of hiring and paying $4,000 if you only stick around for three months, right? So we're like, okay, this, this needs to be reduced. And by, by reducing that friction, we, we firmly believe we opened up the market in a way, you know, and others did, you know, similar things, but it was, became easier and easier for companies to tap into that vast talent pool of people that are not necessarily, you know, in, in their geography, which is a huge thing, right? What is the probability that the talent that you need is where you happen to have your headquarters? Right? It's a very unlikely thing. Um, so that I think, nudged companies more towards, oh, there is talent and we can tap into that. And then obviously sort of, you know, that, that, that development in itself led to talent being more readily available for that as well and saying, oh, companies can just hire me for a couple of months, you know, a couple of weeks and I, I can work for them. And it's actually quite easy to find that. I don't need to interview for 50 days. Um, this is fantastic, right? So I think it was, it was a gradual process more more than anything and there's huge upside to this right when you let's let's start on the freelancer side you don't have to commute right you can you can work remotely you can work for many different companies in a given year right so there's a lot of diversity in what you do the you know the the tasks are not monotone as there might be if you work for a corporate nine to five every day um for a couple of years right you so there's there's a lot of that and it gives you flexibility, right? So you can decide, okay, on a Tuesday, I, I don't want to work because I want to pick up my kids from school or I, you know, want to attend a concert or whatever it may be, which is typically not very compatible with the traditional sort of FTE employment. And then on the company side, I believe, you know, did, and I can only speak to the US economy here, that's sort of the only number I have from the top of my head, they lose out on $165 billion a year in GDP because they don't fill, fill positions, you know, vacancies that they have. And if they had a chance to get the talent, to get the work done um, in a different way than just hiring them on site, that is, you know, obviously a huge upside for them. And also the flexibilities that the freelancers crave, that also helps the companies because they can tap into the talent whenever they need it, but they don't need to keep the capacity of that talent on their payrolls when they don't need them, right? And business is fluctuating. It's not a steady affair. So I think that, you know, that just makes a lot of sense. It's a win-win-win situation. Win-win-win-win-win if you take us into the equation as well. <laughs> so, and I love that, that influence. And I definitely think that the mindset is shifting especially in the corporates as well because they're all of these corporates are promoting people now working from home and five years ago nobody worked from home but i think definitely making sure people do have that flexibility is always going to be an important factor within a business and as you say there is so there are so many cost savings behind it also and especially in freelancing i just find it a really interesting topic 
But what I actually want to talk to you about is is this so we've we've run over what your the work genius do as a business but one of the main points of my podcast is to uncover the real journeys of the entrepreneurs and the struggles that they face because at the moment especially with social media and entrepreneurs and business owners on social media we only see the success we see the we see the products of the success of their business so we see the mansions we see the fast cars we see the luxury holidays and we were mentioning before the episode we started this episode this is somewhat depressing to those aspiring entrepreneurs because we're looking at all of these people thinking they've made it what what am i doing wrong like what why am i not at that point why am i not getting there why am i not getting my first client why cannot why can't i get started so you clearly were at that point at a moment in time so i want to talk, talk about the very beginnings of work genius if you don't mind yeah take me back to the dark places um no i think the, the you know I, I i concur i think um we need to talk more about what it really takes to be successful it's typically not you know just an iphone and a nice background uh, that, that typically doesn't do it um, i think when i think back um you know, we, we started out and literally nothing worked, right? So we built that platform. We had, you know, given sort of our academic backgrounds, we had, we had no idea of how to build a technology platform. So I do a lot, rely on someone. Um, no one teaches you how to hire the right person, right? What to look for. It's a very, it's a very tricky thing to do. So we got that wrong a couple of times and, it's so we hired someone that person didn't work out we had to hire someone else and you know now retrospectively talking about it it's like well yeah of course you get hiring wrong right just find someone new but when you are in that situation you spent money on that person and then you also feel a sense of a you know almost abandoned there's like oh you know we thought that was a member of our team and now they left and they don't believe in it or why they're not exerting enough effort um, so I think the getting the hiring right and building the building the right team creates a lot of frustration, um, and that led to situation like you know Danielle, my my co-founder and I, um, we we ended up doing some of the jobs that were you know posted by clients on the Work Genius platform at the time, and and one sort of prevalent example of that was um, we had a we had a client that requested i don't know how many but you know is is more than 50 content pieces on the topic of love um you know what love means and all of that and we we didn't have enough freelancers at the time to write those and um so so it ended up daniel and me writing these you know i don't know how many there were um, all night long, and I think they were like 400 words a piece or something, right? It was like substantial. It felt like, you know, back in university times, writing essays just on a production line about a topic that, you know, I didn't know anything about at the time. Um, so it was, it, it, was, it was very tricky, but I think the, why we pulled it off was probably because it was the two of us, right? We sat there together in our tiny little office, um, and it was fine because we were in it together. I think that is sort of the one advice that I would give. 
but there's so much disappointment. And nowadays we even tell our people like, you know, the new leaders that we promote into leadership roles, we're like, you have a plan A, that's not going to work, right? Prepare for all the disappointment. And it's a very counterintuitive thing to say. It's, you know, it's almost a bit dark when you say that. But the first person you hire, it will not work, right? You will not find the right person. That person will probably, you know, be not up to your expectation or that person will not like you or the job or was, you know, there will be misalignment. It will not work out. Put that in your budget that you have to hire at least three people to get there, right? And I think preparing people for it is very, very important and not taking that too emotionally is also very important because, you know, you will end up doing the work. You will write 50 content pieces, you know, 500 words each or whatever it was on a topic that you're not very familiar with. You have to do that. You have to be disappointed by someone that you hire. Um, you will not get the contract that you want you will work hard. I remember in Daniel and I, our initial salaries for the first two and a half years was less than the unemployment benefits you get in Germany. Right? Ex explain that to your mother. Um, hey, I went to university for three years. I, you know, I got a bachelor's degree with an, you know, a decent, a decent grade on it, but um, <laughs> I'm making less than unemployed people in this country. So, but that, that's what it takes. And it's, it's brutal. Um, I was on, you know, cheap um, bulgur and rice with ketchup for a very long period of, of my life. So, um, but, you know, it, it, it works out and maybe it doesn't work out and then you have to start all over again. I think it's just being prepared for that failure and knowing what it takes to pull through is, is very important. And, you know, if you do have a companion, it makes it easier. So when did it, all begin to take off and you realize, oh, wait, this is actually going to work. When did that sort of switch happen? I'm not necessarily a switch, but when did you then realize, when did you start raking in a little bit more money and you thought, okay, this is sustainable. We can do this. So I think that was about after two years, right? Maybe a little less. Um, so, but then that, you know, comes and goes as well. So you, as your company grows, you go through different phases, right? In the beginning, it's you're doing something and you're probably fairly decent at doing everything that is required. And then you, you, know, you learn and you manage to you know, be successful at what you do. <clears throat> and then the next stage is now you need to hire people that do that because otherwise you can't scale the company, right? That comes with a whole different set of challenges. You need to identify these people, interview them, uh, you know, sort of convince them of joining your team. Then you need to manage them. So then you go through another phase where, you know, nothing works again because it feels like you're starting all over again. And you have that sense of sometimes like, oh, I want to go back. You know, why don't I just end up doing everything myself again? And now sort of, you know, for the past, I want to say one and a half years, maybe a bit longer, this is sort of the next phase where I am hiring people that are managing other people, right? So this is, this is yet another challenge because now I'm not hiring someone that does the job the best, but now I'm hiring someone that is hiring someone that knows how to do the job the best. And that comes again with a whole different set of challenges. So I think it's 
you need, if you, I guess if you want to be successful and you know, this, the sample size is one here, right? This is, this is my first company. Um, so <laughs> that's all I can speak to, but being prepared to constantly hit new challenges and not giving up um, and never losing that belief in, Hey, I can do it for extended periods of time. You know, you will, you will have very dark days where it's like, okay, I don't believe in any of this, right? This is not working. I should have just started working for a bank, right? That would have been so much easier, which I don't, I don't even know whether that is true, but um, I think that is, that is something that, you know, one piece of advice that I would, I would want to pass on. So when you first started hiring, as the owner of the business, was it stressful knowing that if you didn't make money, you wouldn't be able to pay these people? So making budget every month in order to pay these people's salaries, how stressful was that at first? Oh, phenomenally stressful. I think it's one of the, one of the most stressful experiences of, of running a business because it's, I think one thing is the, the financial commitment that you make, right? I'm paying your salary and people are dependent on salaries most of the time. And the other one is the emotional commitment, right? You're like, I hire you in good faith and you join this company in good faith. And if I cannot make the math work, you know, when it comes to, to, to salaries, I would, I would consider that a failure on my end, right? It's sort of, I, I wasn't honest or I was not as good as I should have been when I made that decision. So I think it's, it's, it's a huge stress factor. Um, thankfully, you know, there's ways of sort of mitigating that either you have a thriving business, uh, that does make money and then budgeting becomes much easier or you, you know, you manage to get an investor or several that do believe in your idea. And then obviously you have to sit down and, you know, do the budget planning and, and you have to stick to it, but you can, you know, you can sort of isolate that stress to some extent. Definitely. Did you ever come close to not actually reaching targets? Was there any, any point where you thought, Oh God, I might actually have to <laughs> say to these people that this month is not going to be easy. No, I think we never ran the risk of not being able to run payroll. Um, we, we sort of, you know, I'm very fortunate that my co-founder is sort of uh, very astute when it comes to sort of financial planning. Um, and he sees, you know, any, any threats he sees like three, six months out. And that is typically enough time to take actions, you know, cut marketing spend or, you know, raise more money, that sort of thing. Yeah. Definitely. So what is the overarching purpose of the service you provide to your clients? So give us a step-by-step -step process of client acquisition to then how you would then take it to the end product as a, as a high level overview. Yeah. So the one, what Work Genius does is we basically equip companies with two things, with the best freelance talent out there and with the technology to source, manage, and pay those freelancers. And when we acquire a client or we talk to a prospect, what they are typically looking for is like, oh, I want to get this done. And then we explain to them, okay, you need that and that person for it. And they're like, oh, but finding that person, vetting that person, you know, creates a lot of overhead. I don't, I don't want to do that. And then we present our technology solution that leverage sort of the latest technology out there to identify the right talent within split seconds 
and then notifies them automatically and staffs them onto your project in a couple of minutes, right? So we're, you know, one of the fastest uh, sort of matchmakers out there. And uh, then we provide you with the software to manage your project seamlessly because that is a huge challenge that companies are not very well trained managing external workforces, meaning people that are not in your office, right? And then the third component is paying them and staying compliant, which is a huge thing, in, you know, especially in the European Union and, and the United States. And sort of we, we, we do these three things. We source, find, and vet the right freelancers. We make it very easy to work with them, even though they're not in the office, enforcing deadlines, ensuring quality, all of these things. And then we pay them for you, issue sort of the, you know, the necessary contracts and in the United States, the 1099s. And this is all within one platform. And that's, that's what we bring to thousands of clients in Europe and the States. How do you vet your freelancers? How, so if you've got like a database of just pure quality freelancers that you know are going to perform every single time? So there's, there's basically two components to this. One is tests that they can take that are sort of, you know, online assessment centers. And then the second one is you build a skill score for every skill that you put on your profile. So, you know, if you were to say you are very good at, you know, audio editing, say you can put that on your profile. And then as you work on the platform, we verify that skill and we give you higher and higher ratings on that particular skill. And then you get access to better and better jobs because companies, on the other hand, are willing to pay more for someone that has demonstrated that skill, just like in sort of a traditional office setting. You know, if you have 20 years of work experience in a sort of respective field, you are expected to make more money there um, because companies can trust you that you can deliver good quality. Definitely. Because I think opposed to then Fiverr, for example, anyone on Fiverr can upload any gig and anyone can buy it but they on there there's no real guaranteed success like i've asked people to do project projects for me and thought oh it's only five pounds five dollars five a whole point behind the name but i've got it back and it's been useless i've just looked at it and think well that was a waste of five pound i know it's only five pound at the end of the day but i'd rather know that i am getting something quality which is good because that's what your service does and your platform is able to provide so I think that's definitely a bonus for these businesses as they will know they are going to get the product that they've paid for, basically. I think we just go after very different markets, right? So I think Fiverr is more of a B2C play, right? Um, and then we are very interested in, in companies using us to manage freelancers, not necessarily you know, an individual like you who is not willing to sign a six or 12 months contract with us, right? For you, that sort of, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that that, you know, experience was not as you expected it to be. Um, but I think that it's just a very different market. And, and Fiverr traditionally has always gone after the individual as opposed to the company. So, yeah, the, you know, we, we consider them a friendly player in the space. Yeah, it was, it was just the podcast art for my podcast, which I ended up doing myself in the end because I thought, I know what it wants to look, I want it to look yeah. like. Ended up just doing it myself, and I think it's turned out quite well. It's, it's good enough, I think. <laughs> um, we have talked about the worst days and the struggles, but I am curious to know, what is your highlight moment in your career so far? What has been the best day? 
the best day. I think one of the things you probably learn, or that I mean, I don't know whether it's generally true, but it's definitely for me. I think you forget about a lot of things um, that that happen, right? Which is sort of you erase that from your memory because of all the struggles you went through, right? And you just don't want to remember that. Um, and I think sort of that also happens to, to the good days, I presume. I know one thing that makes me really happy is working with a team that's equally passionate as me and coming into work in the morning or finishing a project late with people that just care about it as much as I do and are very skilled at what they do and are very driven. And that is, I think that is the greatest reward um, for me because I, I can choose the people that I work with to some extent. So that, that is, I think that makes me very, very happy is can I pinpoint a specific day? No, not, not really. Right. That's, that it, it happens recurringly. Um, it doesn't happen every day, right? Because sometimes I'm traveling, I'm not meeting the team or someone's having a bad day. I'm having a bad day, but I think in general that are sort of the, you know, those are the, those are the highlights of my working career, working with really good people. So do you make sure that you do take time to reflect on the successes opposed to dwelling over the problems that are going on, making sure they get solved? Do you just take a step back and go, look, I've done extremely well for myself. I took this company from just myself and my co-founder to over, I think you've, I think on your website, you said you've got over 60 employees now. Do you yes. ever sit and realize like, cool, I have come a long way. No, maybe <laughs> not. Not really. Um, maybe I should. I think the what keeps moving us forward is that intrinsic desire to do more and never rest and never be satisfied with what we currently have, um, which is not necessarily a recipe for you know happiness. But I think fulfillment is is probably more important to me personally. So I'm just trying to be like, okay, where's the next challenge? How can I solve this? And then after we solved for it, it's like, oh yeah, that felt good. But now what's the next challenge? I would not sit there and be like, oh wow, you know, this is, this is the greatest success of, of you know, um, that, that I will ever experience. No, definitely. And I think it's a fair enough way to go about it as well. Because I know some people do like to sit back and go, oh, we achieved that, that and that this month or that, I think it's an equally it's a good way to look about it. So Marlon, you've been able to provide some incredible value to the listeners this episode, so I can't thank you enough for doing that. But at the end of every single episode, I do like to ask my guests three questions on three topics that I don't think are spoken about enough, which are money, relationships, and death. Morbid way to end the episode, but it's an interesting question that no one, I think I've listened to podcasts and no one asks questions in relation to death and i think it's something that does need to be spoken about more enough but that's the last one so the first question is in relation to money i personally don't think it's in relation it relates directly but up-and-coming entrepreneurs see money as the point of what is what they're trying to make at the end of the day as opposed to looking at as something as a more internal internal rewards like happiness freedom freedom of time, spending now to spend more time with family at the end of the day, they're seeing money as this final, final point that, oh, I'm going to have lots of money if I start a business. But the question is, what does the word success 
mean to you? A good question. I think success for me is overcoming meaningful challenges. I think that, you know, and then, then being reflective, you know, for, for a short moment and being like, oh, wow, you know, I, meant, I managed to do that. I, I got better, right? Because that is sort of, when you overcome a challenge, you know, most of the time you must have risen from where you were before to where you are now. And now you can look back and you're like, oh, wow, I, you know, I, I managed uh, that and I probably mastered a skill while doing that. I think how that relates to money, I feel money is a quantifier for this. It doesn't always apply, right? You could spend your whole life overcoming challenges and mastering skills without amassing wealth, right, in, in monetary terms. But it's a very easy way to quantify career success, money is, yeah. right? So I think that's why people refer to it. That is sort of the, you know, the, the, the quantifying uh, nuance to it. And then there's another nuance, which, which you know, I believe is, is certainly true for me, is there's a lot of uncertainty in life. And it also ties a little bit to your death question. Right? <laughs> there's yeah. a lot of uncertainty. And money removes some of that uncertainty, right? Um, when you can afford the best doctors or you can travel wherever you want to or you don't have to fear that you don't make rent uh, next month, that removes that uncertainty and some of that you know, stress that, that life brings to you. For sure. And I like that you've actually said that because a lot of people don't. They go down the route of, oh, more time, more freedom. That's what success is, being able to spend more time with my family. But as you say, money can't buy everything, but it does relieve a hell of a lot of stress if you have it. And I think everyone yeah. can actually agree with that. Well, it's so not necessarily linear, right? So I think there's, if you hit a certain amount of money, then that is definitely true. And then as you get more money, it's probably going to get more stressful again. So it's a non-linear relationship there. No, for sure. So it flows quite well into one of my next questions about relationships. So throughout your journey, if you found it difficult to maintain relationships, whether that, whether that be with a loved one, family, friends, significant other, or have you found ways to, for those to experience your journey with you? I guess you need to ask them. Um, <laughs> when I think I've always been someone who has few but sort of intense relationships rather than many. I've never been very good, you know, managing multiple relationships, but I'd rather prefer to have, you know, a few a few ones that I can really rely on and that I know that I can give my best to. I think that is that it that sort of is what it's been for me definitely in the past. Sometimes I feel I'm, I'm neglecting sort of relationships uh, just because of my workload. And even at work, sometimes when I'm too busy, I'm not spending enough time with sort of my leadership team, for instance, and, you know, hear how they're doing and what I could do for them and all of that. So I think leadership takes a lot of um, relationships, sorry, takes a lot of time and work. And one must never forget about that life is only meaningful when you have relationships, right? You want to share it with people and uh, you should dedicate enough time and, and resources to your relationships to make them meaningful. So do you think you have room for improvement in this, in this factor? Oh, I have room for improvement in every aspect of my life. 
Cool. And I like that you said that. So my final question is, are you afraid of dying? Well, I, I guess everyone is um, to some extent, right? I think, well, maybe not everyone, but, but I've, I mean, I definitely, you know, I wouldn't want to die tomorrow. Let's put it that way. Am I afraid of dying tomorrow? Yeah, somewhat, like suddenly, right? Uh, I watch out when I cross the street. I think I'm not necessarily afraid of death, right? I feel, well, you, you're dead, right? That's sort of, that's that. Um, but I think the idea of dying too early and having such a long to-do list that I still have, that is something that makes me uncomfortable. But it's not like I think about it a lot, right? Um, if you hadn't brought that up, I probably haven't thought about it in a very long time. Um, but it's not that I, you know... I am afraid of it, but it doesn't occupy much of my time. Great way to end the episode. And I thank you for answering all of my questions. I've thoroughly enjoyed myself. So where can the listeners reach out to you if they have any questions or where can they find your services? Should they need any freelancers? They can always go to workgenius.com and they can reach out to us there and then sort of all messages that, you know, are important are forwarded to me, definitely, or reach out on sort of the, the, the social media platforms. Um, if you want, you can just find me by my name and then uh, that's that. And, you know, I'm happy to sort of have any conversations um, around freelancing and the future of work. Uh, if I can be helpful, you know, in, in, any, in any respect, um, let me know. Definitely. And I will leave um, links in the show notes below so people can find them much easier. Marlon, thank you for your time. And I hope everyone has enjoyed this episode of CEO Journals. Splendid. Thank you for having me on. So that's going to wrap up today's episode of the podcast and I can't thank you all enough for listening. I aim to interview some of the most incredible business owners and entrepreneurs every single week. So you can really help me out by smashing that subscribe button and by leaving me a five-star review over in the iTunes store. It literally takes two seconds and will help me secure some of the greatest names in business as guests on the show. Make sure you tune into the next episode where I'm going to be talking to another incredibly interesting guest. I'll be discussing their journey and providing tips to all your aspiring and current business owners. Have a lovely rest of your day. And once again, thank you for tuning in to CEO Journals.